Hello again, dear listeners. Welcome to episode two of Dread Time Stories, Back from the Grave. We've got a fun show today, but first, I would like to discuss the direction I will take this program. During our initial run, I focused exclusively on horror fiction in the public domain. However, I've decided this show will be devoted to the exploration of weird fiction as a whole, which is a very broad topic and opens many interesting possibilities for us to explore. Practically speaking, however, this changes nothing, except for giving us more story and old-time radio options to consider. Anyway, on to our program. This week, yours cruelly brings you a tale that only recently came to his attention thanks to Ian Gordon and his Horror Babble podcast. This week, Dread Time Stories presents to you The Lure of Atlantis by J.M. Nichols, first published in, in the April 1925 edition of Weird Tales magazine. The story, which is a little longer than the ones we ran last week, tells the story of an expedition into the heart of the legendary Lost Continent. I'll be back shortly to introduce this week's episode of The Magnus Archives. by Joel Martin Nichols Jr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lure of Atlantis by Joel Martin Nichols Jr. There have been so many queer yarns in the newspapers about the sinking of the Nautilus that I, being skipper of the four-master schooner Brand, 
which picked up Professor Charles Rundles, her only survivor, had better set down what really did happen down there in the Sargasso Sea. The Nautilus was a steam yacht owned by Professor Amos Tyrell, a wealthy English naturalist who had built a laboratory on the Cornish coast for the study of fish and seaweed. He and Randolph, who had been his assistant for twenty years, sailed in the Nautilus on the 5th of last February to do some research work in the Sargasso. About this time, the brand was rounding the horn out of Santiago, Chile, with a load of nitrates bound for Charleston, South Carolina. We struck a blow off the River Plate, and my old hooker lost her rudder. When things cleared up a bit, we found ourselves pretty well out in the South Atlantic, but we rigged a jury rudder and headed northwest, figuring on dropping into some Cuban port to refit. We struck the Sargasso about fifteen days later, and one fine morning we picked up this Professor Randolph, who was bobbing about in the open sea without the sign of a stick to keep him up. He was delirious when we brought him aboard, but after he came to his right senses, he told me the queerest yarn I ever heard in my life, and I've heard some rather good ones in the forty years I've been following the sea. At first I put him down as crazy, but we'd no sooner got him aboard than hell began a-popping all around us right there on the brand. When she finally got through, with two of her sticks missing, and some of those hard-boiled birds in the forecastle are praying to the Almighty to save them from the devils of the deep, I made up my mind that maybe he wasn't so crazy after all. Then I had Randolph write down his story in his own words. I turned the original over to the authorities, and I suppose the British Admiralty has it now, but I copied the whole thing word for word in the Brand's log. The professor headed his story in big letters, Statement of Dr. Charles Williams Randolph Concerning the Sinking of the Nautilus, and this is how it read. Captain Andrew Waters of the schooner Brand has asked me to write down the story of the cruise of the Nautilus and of what befell her unfortunate crew and my colleague, Dr. Amos Tyrell, and since it seems certain now that the Brand is not to suffer the fate of the Nautilus, I have agreed to comply with his request. It is perhaps unnecessary for me to delineate the relationship between Dr. Tyrell and myself, since we were students of natural science together at the University of Edinburgh twenty years ago. His accomplishments in the field of natural history, his studies and deductions from his exhaustive researches in the Seven Seas, his magnificent laboratory at Bournewell, all have given him an international fame, which needs no emphasizing here from me. Suffice it to say that I may designate myself merely as an unworthy assistant in his great work, a humble satellite reflecting but a dim gleam from the splendor of his genius. The world, when it has read this statement, will realize that these are strange words coming now from me, in view of the discord, mild term, between Dr. Tyrell and myself, which ended in the horrifying fate of the Nautilus. It was a discord which really had its inception five years ago when Dr. Tyrell exhibited the first signs of a divided interest in his life work, an interest which led him away from his studies of undersea life and eventually found him devoting a large share of his time to archaeological research. He began his course by taking extended trips to Egypt and Central America, where he indulged in a comparative study of prehistoric architecture found on the two continents professing to find between them a most amazing and wholly unaccountable similarity.
Being engrossed with our original labors, I paid little attention to his assertions until one day he came to me with the astounding announcement that he had evolved a tenable theory for the existence of the lost continent of Atlantis. In support of it, he produced a vast number of photographs and other data which purported to show that the pyramids found in the jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula were in reality small copies of the mighty piles found in Egypt, and that in other ways he had established an unanswerable argument for there being, in prehistoric times, a bridge of land between the African and American continents. It was his further contention that this land connection was the lost Atlantis, sunk beneath the waves of the South Atlantic Ocean by some stupendous cataclysm. Egypt, in the heyday of its power, he asserted, had been not but a poor outpost of Atlantis, reflecting only a dim glimmer of the splendors of that lost continent. I must confess that I was bitterly disappointed in my colleague's new activities, for I had always held that the existence of Atlantis was a matter for metaphysical speculation, and not one to engage the serious attentions of men engrossed in the more objective sciences. I was gravely considering the necessity of voicing this conviction in the form of a gentle reproof to Dr. Tyrell, when he came to me one day in great excitement, brandishing before my eyes a piece of twisted metal. I have it, Randolph, he fairly shouted at me. This proves my theory. We've found Atlantis. Dr. Tyrell was not given to practical joking, so I accepted the proffered metal, although with a preconceived skepticism. It was, I should say, a bit of framework done in bronze, very like the lintel of a door. There are many similar pieces in the temples of ancient Egypt. Carved on its surface, however, were some peculiar hieroglyphics, which on closer observation I recognize as a type of cuneiform writing. Is this one of your Egyptian finds? I queried, somewhat testily. He waved me down in derision. This, he said excitedly, was pulled out of the South Atlantic Ocean on the flux of an anchor dropped overboard by the tramp steamer Pole Star. Ah, uh, yes, said I, a bit of submerged driftwood. "'Nonsense!' he shouted. "'Let me tell you about it. "'This vessel was caught in a storm somewhere down there. "'I've got the exact bearings, "'and her anchor was carried overboard by a large sea. "'It ran out almost the whole length of the cable "'before they could arrest it. "'When they finally had opportunity to attend to it, "'they found that they were anchored. "'Think of it, Randolph. "'Anchored out there in the Sargasso Sea, "'where the Admiralty chart set the depth at nearly a mile. "'And when they got the anchor up, they found this bit of bronze twisted about one of the flukes. A hoax, I exclaimed. They fooled you for a good price. I paid them nothing, he retorted. They believed there was some subterranean upheaval throwing up a submerged island, which by chance caught their anchor. But this bit of bronze never came from any submerged wreck, as they believe. It came from one of the hilltop temples of the lost Atlantis. I have been able to translate this inscription. Do you know what it means? I admitted caustically that I did not. It means, he continued, Wynona, fair princess of Atlantis. There is something more, but it is unintelligible. Wynona was the daughter of the last king of Atlantis. Small good it will do you, I put in. You can never prove it. 
Indeed, he retorted, then you may be interested to know that I've ordered the Nautilus to be ready for sea in eight days. I'm going down there with our diving equipment, and if it isn't too deep, I'm going to explore this watery kingdom. You may come, if you wish. To make a long story short, I must say here that I was in reality more interested than I cared to admit, and it took no great urging to get me to go along. As Dr. Tyrell had pointed out, we were already well equipped for the contemplated cruise. The Nautilus, Dr. Tyrell's yacht, was virtually a floating laboratory in which we had spent many happy months in our exploration of the seven seas. On board was every apparatus imaginable to aid in deep-sea work. Many of the devices had been invented or perfected by my colleague. Chief among these were two of the latest type diving suits, glass, steel and rubber affairs capable of withstanding excessive undersea pressures. Air was furnished to the wearer from tanks at the shoulders, and thus the danger of entangling lifelines and air hose was eliminated. Now, as I write, it seems to me almost a catastrophe that those invaluable accessories have been lost forever to the world. We steamed out of our harbour at Bornwell on the 5th of February. Our voyage was uneventful, and three weeks later we were over the spot indicated in the nautical bearings furnished us by the captain of the Pole Star. How well I remember that morning of our first sounding! How well I remember my own excitement, raised to the zenith by the enthusiasm of Dr. Tyrell! And how well I remember the look on his face, and the leap in my own heart, when our sounding lead showed bottom at 280 feet, even as the captain of the Pole Star had said. We had indeed found a submerged island. Whether it was Atlantis, I was still sceptical. On the following morning, after having made the necessary preparations, we donned our diving suits and dropped over the side of the Nautilus into the sea. The spot, as I have already indicated, was approximately in the middle of the Sargasso Sea, but fortunately the surface of the ocean about us, for the space of almost a square mile, was free of the encumbering marine growth so peculiar to these waters. Thus, throughout the middle part of the day, we expected to have the full value of the sun, thereby rendering unnecessary our electric searchlights, which were at best rather cumbersome and unsatisfactory for deep-sea work. Once in the sea, with our arms locked together, we sank down, down, down. The water proved to be even clearer than we had hoped. Indeed, it was almost abnormally transparent, and the shafts of the sun bade fair to penetrate quite as far as we desired to go. We must have been descending slowly for nearly five minutes, when suddenly Dr. Tyrell loosed his arm and pointed with his gloved finger into the distance at my back. Turning my head within my helmet, I saw, with a tremendous leap of my heart, that we were floating slowly down beside a beautiful, tapering pinnacle cut in a stone which appeared to be marble. Almost immediately other and lesser pinnacles arose gradually about us, all of them glowing with very colored tints under the penetrating rays of the sun. Peering at some of the nearer ones, I saw that they were not some mere basaltic upheaval, they had been built by human hands. We had found Atlantis. The luminous glow from above had grown only slightly dimmer when we came gently to rest on what appeared to be the roof of some gigantic building, a roof which on closer observation I saw was of a thick but lucid crystal. 
all about us on a kind of ridge pole of this temple, if such it was, I saw bits of curiously carved statuary, some of them apparently broken off by the undulating action of the deep-sea currents. I would have paused over them in wonderment had it not been for Dr. Tyrell, who, without hesitation, walked deliberately to the edge of the roof, where we again dropped off into the open water. A moment later we filtered gently to rest on a wide landing in a magnificent set of marble stairs. Glancing up with thumping heart, I realized that we were standing at the very threshold of a splendid marble temple. I would that I had the time or the talent for describing the magnificence, the awe-inspiring beauty of that scene. The walls towering up before us were of purest marble, slightly tinted a bluish-green by the intervening water. Above our heads, the shafts of the sun, only slightly dimmed by the lesser depth, played on those lofty spires with all the colors of the rainbow, tints shading away in all degrees of green, yellow, red, purple, and blue. All about us on the stairs, standing for the most part on pedestals of what appeared to be pure gold, was some of the most exquisite statuary I have ever seen, save for a few pieces carved in the form of some hideous beast, the like of which I have never seen on earth, the majority of the effects were extremely pleasing to the eye, and were evidently from the hands of the sublimest masters, who had far surpassed the best of Phidias or Praxiteles, or the unknown author of the Venus of Melos. And yet the effect in totality was marred, as I have indicated, by the weird shapes of some of the beasts. Then, too, there was a peculiar type of fungus growing over them, a kind of seaweed unknown to me, which writhed and moved about the statuary like a thing alive. Some of it seemed actually to be coiling and uncoiling about the throat of a beautiful maiden, exquisitely carved in a pinkish marble, standing near us on the stairs. While I was charmed with the statuary, I must admit from the outset that this strange marine growth made me shudder. It was too uncannily alive. Even as we walked up the steps, it recoiled from our footsteps to make way for us, but on looking back I noted that it returned again to its original resting place and seemed, in fact, to be following us up to the top. At the head of the flight we found a pair of magnificent bronze doors, fortunately wide open. Oddly enough, both were heavily embossed with the figure of a winged animal not unlike the Egyptian sphinx, part woman, part beast, and part bird. Although the doors were open, there was a tangle of that disgusting marine growth across the threshold, and Dr. Tyrell, with a gesture of impatience, drew his knife to hack away into the place. But even as he reached out to seize the stuff, it recoiled and parted of its own accord, thereby giving us ready access. Behind the bronze doors was a magnificent hall, or foyer, I do not know how else to describe it. Halfway down, on our right, was an open doorway, leading into another and more spacious hall. Light from the ocean surface filtered into the place through the crystal roofs, but its intensity had been so greatly dimmed by the depth that we could not see clearly for more than twenty feet ahead of us. Keeping well to the right so that we should not lose our way, we suddenly came face to face with the wall of the temple, noting, with a gasp of admiration, that its surface was covered with beautiful murals, apparently done in gold leaf with backgrounds of silver and a substance which might be ivory. 
Following the murals to the very foot of the walls, I noted that the floor on which we were walking had been done in the most delicate and intricate of mosaics. We feasted our eyes on those beauties for several minutes, and then began following the wall at our right. I was in the act of commenting, mentally, on the absence of any furnishings or statuary in the hall proper, when suddenly there loomed before us in the greenish gloom a sizable marble cubicle. Coming nearer, we saw that this was only the first of a series, mortised to the walls and standing about as high as our waists. A further approach showed us that they were in reality a row of marble bins, to use a prosaic term. But what bins they were! What beauty! What contents! Pounds and pounds of jewels in every hue of the rainbow! In one cubicle I buried my arms up to the elbow in the finest of rubies. From another I saw Dr. Tyrell hold up a double handful of glittering emeralds and diamonds, a king's ransom in those alone. My natural cupidity had seized hold of me, and I was for taking some of the gems with us, but I noted that Dr. Tyrell, always a scholar, had tossed his jewels back into place, and then I shamefacedly followed his example. As we wandered further down the hall, he informed me in the sign language we had developed for undersea work that he had concluded this was a mortuary chapel built on one of the Atlantean hilltops. If such it proved to be, he pointed out, we should soon come upon human remains, as the Atlanteans were credited by ancient chroniclers with having developed an amazing method of preserving their dead. He was walking to one side and a little ahead of me as he imparted this information, and he had scarcely finished when I saw him suddenly pause, peer ahead into the gloom, and then hurry forward, signing me to follow. In the greenish half-light I saw that we were approaching the end of the hall, and that up against the wall was what appeared to be a huge marble altar. And then I saw Wynonna, Princess of Atlantis. She was laid out there in her crystal tomb. Her eyes, with their glorious blue, were open and smiling. The roses were still in her cheeks. The very pink was in her fingernails. I suppose I was a bit wrought up, for I could have sworn that she moved and smiled up at us. Dr. Tyrell had dropped on one knee, his hands clasping the sides of her beer, and now he crouched there, peering through the glass of his helmet at this lovely handiwork of God. I do not know whether he cried out with the marvel of it, but I know that I did, for the sound echoed and re-echoed within the confines of my glass-and-rubber prison. Never before had I seen so beautiful a creature. Her tomb, or casket, all of clear crystal, was tipped upward, so that she appeared to be reclining there, gazing out upon the hall below her. I could see every outline of her figure, every lineament of her features. I recognized immediately the Egyptian strain in the firm, straight nose, the perfect curve of the somewhat full lips, and the exquisitely modeled chin, tender yet imperiously firm, but withal, shall I say it, slightly cruel. Her figure, slightly swathed in a filmy lace of gold, was perfection, possibly a trifle fuller at the hips than we are wont to approve nowadays, but perfect nevertheless. I have spoken of her contours as purely Egyptian, but here the comparison ceases, for your ancient Egyptian was of a swarthy race, but this woman of Atlantis was of the fairest, with wide-opened eyes as blue as the cornflowers in her native England, 
and high-piled hair as yellow as the golden fillets with which it was bound. I can see my reader shudder at the thought of thus gazing upon the dead, but I can tell him the sight of the lovely Wynonna thus affected neither Tyrell nor myself. I do not know how long we stood there, gazing at this exquisite creature, but it must have been a very long while, for my heart began to labor, and my head began to throb in a way which told me that the oxygen in the tanks at our backs must be getting low. Almost at that identical moment, I felt an uncanny tightening and drawing sensation about my legs and ankles. Glancing quickly downward, I saw something that left me cold with horror. That loathsome seaweed, unnoticed by us, had crept into the chapel and was now seemingly growing in all directions over the floor. Some of it had entwined about my ankles, producing upon them a peculiar drawing and tagging sensation similar to that felt by a person walking in the undertow on a wave-washed beach. A swift glance over to my colleague produced in me a second and greater wave of horror. I saw him there, lost in contemplation of the sleeping beauty, and utterly unmindful that this hideous creeping thing had gone further on him than it had on me. Indeed, it bade fair to cover his whole body." During the course of my twenty years' exploration of the world under the sea, I have had many occasions to be terrified by the activities of plant and animal life there, but never have I been so submerged in horror as when I beheld that slimy weed squirming and twisting over our bodies. I must have cried out with the shock of it, for my head began to ring within my helmet, and I clutched frantically for the knife at my belt, with the intention of hacking away the stuff at my ankles. My panic was short-lived, however, for no sooner had I reached for the weed than it uncoiled itself of its own free will, seeming actually to recoil at the dull gleam of my weapon. Then, in two strides, I was at Dr. Tyrell's side, intending to shake him back to a realization of our danger. Twice I grasped his shoulder before he paid the slightest attention to me, absorbed as he was in his contemplation of the smiling beauty in her crystal tomb. Finally, on my last somewhat rough importunity, he turned suddenly about and struck at me angrily with his hand. Almost immediately he must have regretted this act, for he signed to me that he was sorry, that he had forgotten himself for the moment. I told him our oxygen was getting low and pointed to the seaweed on my body, expecting him to be as horror-stricken as I had been. Oddly enough, however, he did not seem to mind it, for he got to his feet and then, to my profound astonishment, the weed slowly unfolded and left him free. With a last glance at our recumbent beauty, we started from the hall, the seaweed drawing apart before our steps until a wide lane extended before us to the door. Outside on the terrace we prepared to lose our weights for our journey to the surface, but here a new and greater horror struck us. Glancing down from our high point of vantage, before the temple doors, I saw in the mass of seaweed to the right and left of the staircase, the ribs, the broken stumps, the twisted stern plates, the battered superstructures of many sunken ships. There must have been at least a hundred of them, piled together helter-skelter, and heaven knows how many more lay further down in the valley where the rays of the sun did not penetrate. I do not know how long we would have paused there, gazing upon this scene of desolation, had it not been that the increased difficulty of breathing warned us we could tarry no longer. 
Accordingly, we slipped our weights and arose slowly to the surface, the rose and Nile green of the Atlantean spires dropping slowly behind us. Only once did I look down in our journey, and not until then did I realize that the seaweed from the Atlantean temple had followed us, was in fact dogging our very heels. The stuff hovered there on the surface for a minute after we had climbed aboard the Nautilus, and then, as if pulled by some unseen hand from below, it slowly sank from sight. I come now to a point in my story where I am loath to continue, for it must reveal in me an atavistic strain, the existence of which, until this last accursed cruise of the Nautilus, I had never suspected. As may be guessed from the preceding narrative, neither Dr. Tyrell nor myself had ever married, our labors and researches having provided us with a diversity of experience which rendered unnecessary a venture into other fields of existence. Up until the time of the last cruise of the Nautilus, I can say with certainty that no woman, nor even any thought of woman, has ever disturbed the quiet tenor of my emotional life. For my colleague, I think I can say the same. Hence it was somewhat a shock to me, when I awoke during that night, to find the lovely sensual face of the exquisite Wynonna haunting me, there in the darkness of my cabin. For a time the sensation was a pleasant one. I felt a warm invigoration of my being, a sensuous flow of hot blood in my body, which, although slightly tempestuous, was not without a certain indefinable charm. I remember that I reached back to the headboard of my bed, seized there the enamel rail, and stretched myself in the warm luxury of the tropic night. I felt remade, a new thing. I felt that in some indefinable way nature had poured into me renewed health, renewed youth. I wanted to arise, to pace about my cabin. I wanted to go to the decks of the Nautilus, to race up and down, cloaked only in the star-spangled robe of the equatorial night. I felt that I had the power to reach out and embrace the whole world. For a time I lay there, enjoying to the full this entirely new reaction and speculating on the psychological aspect of my new inspiration. In a little while, however, I began to grow too warm, the hot blood pounding through my veins became in a very few minutes a source of complete and profound and wholly inexplicable irritation. In vain I attempted to throw off the mood. In vain I attempted all the known tricks of wooing sleep. In vain I tossed and tumbled about with the gentle rolls of the Nautilus. Eventually I arose, drew on my dressing gown, for I had thrown aside my pajamas when the mood first came upon me, and thus attired strode out upon the decks. Forward I saw a tiny ruby glow, which I took to be the lighted cigarette of the watch. Above, almost outshone by the brilliance of the southern cross, were the riding lights of the Nautilus. All was peace, excepting in my own brain. I strode forward, my irritable mood pricking me onward, and reprimanded the watch for smoking on duty, although I knew such mild breaches of discipline had been winked at by both captain and mate on these long voyages. I remember how, in surprise, he flipped it overboard, the glowing end describing a perfect half-circle as it dropped into the sea. Somehow even that bothered me. Presently I walked back toward the stern, and, rounding the corner of the after-deck house, I came, suddenly, upon Dr. Tyrell. He was standing there, half-draped over the rail, and peering intently down into the sea. 
For some reason unknown to me, I paused there, watching him. He did not move. He might have been a statue of stone gazing over the rail. Again I felt a wave of unreasonable irritation, a veritable sweep of anger. Why should he be standing there, peering so intently down into the sea? Why was he not in his cabin, where he belonged at this hour, gaining rest for the labors of tomorrow? Somehow I did not realize then that I was blaming him for the very thing which I myself was doing. As I stood there watching him, he slowly straightened up and lifted his eyes to the stars. His lips were moving, and I thought that he sighed. It was then that I noted, seemingly for the first time in all our relationship, what a handsome figure of a man he was, with his clear-cut, aquiline profile, his full molded chin, his crisp curly hair only slightly tinged with grey at the temples, and that magnificent figure with its tremendous shoulders, flat hips, and gently sloping flanks. Somehow it made me feel small and puny and hopeless. All my newfound vigor drained from me in that moment, and I felt a strange, hot resentment against the man. Suddenly I had come to be old and worn and gnarled and terribly weary. Thinking thus, and without disturbing my colleague, I went back to my cabin and a sleepless vigil into the dawn. That morning, while we were taking breakfast, Dr. Tyrell told me quietly that there would be no need for my going down that day. Why? I asked, somewhat testily, though never before had I questioned his decisions. It is exhausting work, he replied, and we do not know how long we can stay here before there may be a storm, in which case we may have to up-anchor and run before it. I think we can work best by going down in turn, I today, you tomorrow. His reasoning seemed wholly specious, but I assented sullenly. Throughout the four hours of his trip below, I lived in torture. I thought of him down there, walking through those magnificent halls, enjoying the wonders of Atlantis, the attraction of the ancient chapel, the charm of that smiling beauty there in her crystal tomb. Vaguely I wondered what he would bring up with him, and you may guess that I was somewhat startled when he came up, as he had gone down, with nothing at all. That night, for the first time in our long friendship, we had harsh words in his cabin. I upbraided him for bringing up none of the jewels, pointing out that even if he himself had no need for further wealth, some of the rest of us were poor men, and could put them to good use. My remark seemed to anger him greatly, and he lost himself in a mighty gust of wrath. There are not ours, he thundered, towering over me. Not one jot nor tittle of them shall we take. They are hers. They belong to Wynonna. You shall not have them. You are mad, I raged. You are inhumanly selfish. You at least owe it to these poor men aboard, who could be made independent for life. It is not within your right to deny them. All my raging was of no avail, and the next morning I was only partly surprised when he told me curtly that only he would go beneath the waters. And for another four hours I sat there on the decks of the Nautilus, suffering the tortures of the damned. And again he came up empty-handed. That night we went at it again over the teacups. I raged, I tore, I stamped about the room, but he answered me with gentle words, or, more often, not at all. For the most part, he was peculiarly silent, almost uncannily pleasant. When I had finished my tirade, he got up, but paused on the threshold of his cabin. Fear not, he said with a peculiarly quiet smile. 
They shall have everything. Every foot of Atlantis shall be theirs. They shall climb its hills, wander through its halls, sun themselves on its terraces. They shall know its every beauty, all its wealth. But for you, my friend, I can promise nothing. You are not wanted down below. His cryptic remark startled me, and I began to wonder if he were not a little mad. That night I lay awake through all the long hours until dawn, thinking not of the jewels, of the wealth in Atlantis, but only of Wynonna. At dawn I slept a little, and she came in all her gorgeous beauty and mocked me there in my cabin. That day I vowed I should be I who would go below. In that I was vastly mistaken, however. We quarreled at the rail just before he went over, but he brushed me back and plunged into the sea. I saw his face laughing up in derision through the glass of his helmet as he slowly sunk from sight. For perhaps an hour I sat there by the rail until the strain became no longer endurable. Then it was that the bonds of my respect to Dr. Tyrell's judgment were broken, and I realized, of a sudden, that there was nothing to keep me from going down, even against his wishes. Thinking thus, I got myself into my diving dress and slipped over the side. I landed, by good luck, about halfway up the stairs to the temple. There again before me I saw that accursed seaweed, but I spurned it quickly aside and climbed the stairs. At the entrance the wretched staff attempted to bar my way, but I drew my knife and slushed at it until it drew back. Then I walked into the foyer, and from thence into the chapel. Somehow I knew I should find him there, and I was not disappointed. As the details at the further end of the hall were revealed to me through the dimness, I saw him kneeling before that altar with his head down across her crystal tomb, his face behind the glass in his helmet pressed close to hers. And then I knew that I hated him, hated him because he loved her, and because I loved her, and because in some way I knew he was the favored one. For the first time I realized that I, too, had cared nothing for the jewels, that I, too, would have scorned to rifle her chapel. Always it had been Wynonna, and now he had taken her from me. I hated him with every spark of my soul, every fiber of my being. Dastard, I shrieked, thus you have beguiled your time, thus you have hoodwinked us all. I had forgotten that the sound could not penetrate beyond the confines of my helmet, and now it echoed and re-echoed in my steel and rubber prison, ringing and screeching in my ears until the very blood seemed to well up into my eyes, and the sea before me was as scarlet. Without thought of what I was about to do, I pushed forward, knife in hand. I would kill him there. I would cut him down with as little compunction as I had the seaweed before the portals. But I must be crafty. I had no intention of giving him a chance in fair fight. I would walk up behind him and strike with my knife through the rubber joints at his throat, rip the blade downward to his breast, and leave him there, either to drown or bleed to death. How I would laugh as he died there at the feet of his beauty! What an outcome for his secret tryst! And then a very strange thing happened. There was no way under heaven that he could have known of my approach, for he was kneeling with his back toward me. There was nothing to warn him, no sound from me that could have penetrated that watery space to the ears within his helmet. Yet, while I was still twenty feet away, I saw him get slowly to his feet and turn about, 
his hand going to the knife at his belt even before he could have realized my purpose. Thus confronted, I brandished my weapon and bade him in our sign language to be prepared, since I intended to kill him or die in the attempt. Scarcely had I finished when, to my utter astonishment, he slowly replaced the knife in its sheath and quietly awaited my coming. Taken back though I was, I had no intention of losing my purpose. His very sureness enraged me the more. I strode forward, bending all my weight against the intervening water, holding my blade in readiness. Now I stood before him and saw his white, sneering face behind the glass. Shrieking aloud with a strange exultation, I raised my weapon to strike, but I never made that stroke. Even as my arm descended in its murderous errand, I felt myself suddenly and helplessly snatched away. It was that accursed seaweed. The damnable staff had twined about my body as I strode across the hall. And now, as I drew near enough to plunge my weapon home, it had snatched me away. In vain I foamed and fought it, slashing to the right and to the left. In vain I ripped and tore and cut, using my gloved hands where the blade seemed too slow. Where I slashed off yards of the stuff, new tendrils seemed to grow, enveloping my body. Frothing and screaming, kicking and squirming, I was dragged across the hall and out on the steps before the temple. There, despite my weights, the weeds seemed to gather under me, forcing me upwards. In but a few minutes, the slowly receding spires of Atlantis told me that I was on my way to the surface. I lay on the bosom of the sea, kicking and screaming, but that diabolical stuff was determined that I should not sink again. Finally, as all strength seems to be leaving me, I felt myself hauled slowly out of the water. They on board the Nautilus, seeing me struggling there in the water, had slipped a boat hook under the ring at my belt and were pulling me to her decks. But I was crafty. Once on board, I revealed nothing of what had happened, merely pretending that I had been taken with cramps on coming to the surface. Then, very carefully, I laid my plans to kill Dr. Tyrell as soon as he should return. Secretly, I got out my pistol and a knife, and watched for the ascending bubbles that would tell of his coming. But he never came. I waited there until dusk, waited until the captain came to me in alarm, and begged me to go below in search of his missing employer. I should have been glad to go, for another purpose than he thought, but I knew that devilish seaweed would stop me at the outset. Looking over the side, I could see it lurking there, waiting. Once I was in its clutches, it could hold me there powerless while my quarry came aboard in safety, and my last chance was lost. But I could not tell them this, so I cut a rent in my diving dress, telling them it would be impossible for me to venture below. With the coming of darkness, all thought of my leaving the ship was abandoned, and Dr. Tyrell's life was despaired of. For myself, I knew that he was still down there, keeping his tryst with Wainona, and the thought of it made me fairly boil with rage. As the night wore on, I became exhausted with the play of conflicting emotions, and pretending an illness, I went to my cabin. I must have slept longer than I had intended, for I had many long dreams in which I saw my colleague in the arms of Wainona. The two of them stood there on one of the pillars of Atlantis, mocking me as I struggled with the weeds of Sargasso. Each dream brought the stuff nearer my throat, while it shook and crushed me as if I were a rodent in the grip of a python. 
It had clutched my shoulders and was shaking me again when I awoke and saw that I was not at the bottom of the sea, but safe in my cabin, with the captain of the Nautilus grasping me frantically by the shoulders. "'What is the matter?' I demanded, bounding out of my bed and wondering if Dr. Tyrell had slipped back during the watches of the night. "'The ship is sinking, sir,' he said, his voice all tremble in the darkness. "'You'd best come on deck. There's something wrong. I don't understand it.' The man's teeth were actually chattering, and the tones of his voice struck me into a panic. As I stood there, peering at his white face in the gloom, I noticed for the first time that the floor of my cabin had assumed a noticeable angle. The ship appeared to be no longer responding to the roll of the seas, but wobbled and tugged in an uncannily impotent way. Hastily donning an overgarment, I hurried out on deck. The night was starlit, the ocean smooth, save for the gentle undulating billows from which it is never free, and yet the Nautilus was going down by the head. Already the angle of her decks had assumed a higher pitch while I had tarried there in my cabin. At that moment she assumed a slight list to port, the wobble becoming more accentuated with each billow. In the forward part of the vessel there arose a wail of voices from the throats of terror-stricken helpless men. I turned angrily to the captain and demanded why he had not set the crew to the pumps. "'I've tried that, sir,' he answered, "'and I found there isn't a drop of water in her hold.' "'It's her anchor there,' I said. "'It's probably caught on the bottom, and the rising tide is pulling her under.' "'I'm not a nautical man, and this seemed an adequate explanation.' "'I had the anchor up an hour ago, sir,' he answered. "'I tried to pull out of here, actually tried to get her under way, "'but her propellers won't budge here.' "'My God, sir, it seems that we're being pulled down. "'We actually can't move.' "'At that moment there came a ripping and creaking sound from her hold, "'followed by another drunken wobble to port, "'and that, I think, gave me my first inkling "'of what was really happening to the Nautilus. "'Running up into the forward part of the ship, "'I peered over the side, "'but I saw there pulled a strange cry of exultation from my throat.' Under her bowsprit, and I dare say all along the whole length of her keel, were little sucker-like tendrils protruding from the water, warming and squirming their way upward over her smooth white sides. The Nautilus was in the grip of the Sargasso seaweed. She was being pulled under, pulled under to Atlantis. Now I understood that gruesome pile of wreckage so far below. I realize that when the world reads this, it will call me mad, and I think for the next few hours perhaps I was. I sprang into the air, I jumped and leaped about the deck, I shouted for very joy. I was going to fool Dr. Tyrell, after all. He had said Atlantis would not take me, but it was taking the Nautilus, and if it took the Nautilus, it must take me. The crew must have gathered from my yells and exclamations of triumph what had happened, for they left off their wails and went to work with hatchets, knives, and axes. The weed by this time had crept up almost to the rails, and now, as if realizing it had been discovered, it actually began swarming over the side, onto the decks, and eventually into the masts and rigging. They, poor fellows, chopped and hacked and fought it through most of the night. It was a losing fight. Inch by inch her bow tilted downward, inch by inch her rounded stern arose toward the heavens. Once they tried to lower her boats, but no sooner had these touched the water than the seaweed fastened its clutches upon them. When the angle of her decks became impossible for further footing, I climbed to her stern rail, where I perched and howled and shrieked in glee. 
Ah, fool, fool that I was! I had forgotten that Atlantis did not want me. Had I been more clever, had I had more of the cunning of the day before, I should have hidden myself away, somewhere in the bowels of her, and gone down with her to the very depths. She went down at dawn with a dull creaking of strained timbers and a hoarse, despairing gargle and whistle from the air expelled from her holds. And I, fool, perched there on her stern rail, shrieked and shouted for the very joy of it. One by one I saw their bobbing heads go under. One by one I saw the last bits of wreckage enveloped by that slimy creeping thing and engulfed forever. At noon, at night, I was still floating on. Again and again I dived, seeking to entangle myself. Again and again I felt myself thrust backward to the surface. The sun, a blistering ball of copper in the sky, sunk lower and lower, and with the coming of the night I believe I must have slept there on the bosom of the Sargasso Sea. There were other days and other nights when I screamed and writhed in raging impotence, for I had come to realize that the sea was only playing with me, waiting there idly for me to die, when I should be carried far from Atlantis and Wynonna by some swift current. And on the dawn of the third day, a great ship hovered over me, and even against my will I was saved. I come now to the end of my story. I know that the world will judge me mad in the writing of it, but for the world and its judgment I care nothing, for I know whereof I have spoken. I have yet another and longer story to bring to a close, and as I set this down, I plan to write my finis to it out there on the decks of the Brand. Of this Captain Waters knows nothing, for I have his promise that he will not read this until tomorrow. Therefore, on this third day of March, I hereby set my signature to this, my story. Charles Williams Randolph well, Randall's story, as he told it to me, when we first pulled him aboard the brand, was about the same as his statement, except maybe it wasn't so connected. But as I said before, we'd no sooner got him aboard than the capful of wind we've been relying on dropped off and left us in a dead calm, and then things commenced to happen. It was about midnight that night, I guess, when we first noticed the old hooker had stopped rolling and was beginning to wobble in a queer sort of way. I didn't pay much attention to it, but turned in, leaving the deck to the mate. He woke me up about an hour later. She was down by the head and already in a bad way. I remember Randall's yarn about the seaweed then, and so I ran forward to the chains and looked over the side. Well, sir, I could see it there on her cutwater and all around her forefoot. Then there came a creaking and a groaning from her holds, which meant that her bottom must be covered. I had the whole crew piped and we went to it, with axes and knives and everything we could lay our hands on. As heaven is my judge, you could see it a-growing over her sides. It was alive. In no time at all it was on her decks and into her rigging. While we were fighting it out of the main shrouds, it would get into the jigger, and when we'd get at the jigger, it would get up into the mizzen, and so on. Finally, we began to list pretty badly to port, and so I ordered the mate to put away the fore and jigger, they being the ones that seemed the worst. This helped a little, but not much. And that man, Randolph, he was a fiend. He came out on deck and danced there like a maniac, yelling and singing. He didn't try to interfere with the crew, so we didn't pay any attention to him. After a while, I saw him going below, and I didn't find him until afterwards. We were pretty well loaded up with chili and nitrates, valuable stuff, and so I held on to her cargo as long as I could, hoping we might get her clear. 
but after a while I saw it was no go. With the cargo out of her, I knew she'd be harder to pull under, but on the other hand, when she was empty, it would be easier for that stuff to pull her over on her beam ends. But it was nip and tuck for our lives, then, and to hell with the cargo. So I gave the order for half the crew to open her hatches and get the stuff out. It was in powdered form and packed in sacks, three hundred pounds to the sack. We began getting it up as best we could, and no easy job it was with the list on her, and the wobble and all that slimy stuff a-squirming over her, both alow and aloft, which dropped about twenty or maybe thirty bags over the side when one of them broke and spilled into the water. That was what saved us, that bag breaking over the side. I was standing by the rail, helping the men, when I saw it spill into the water, and then I noticed there was a hissing and a boiling all about her where the stuff had gone in, and that weed, it just melted away all around her water line for the distance of ten feet, curled up and dropped off. That gave me my idea. There was some chemical reaction in that nitrate which was death to that seaweed. I grabbed the next bag and knifed it open and we dumped it in. Then it was sure the nitrates would do the trick. Well, sir, we just quit fighting that stuff with knives and axes and went at it with those nitrates. We sprinkled it all over the ship, fore and aft, and then we put the well-boat over the side and sprinkled the stuff against her sides and as far down as we could get below her water-line. Pretty soon the weed in the rigging began to dry up and wither away, and then she began to roll a bit instead of wobbling, another six hours of it, with most of the cargo overboard, and we were clear. We still had some canvas on her, and a little breeze came along and pushed her out of there. I thought maybe Randolph had thrown himself overboard and had not been noticed during the excitement, but the next day we found him hiding in the afterhold. He said he was waiting for the ship to go down and that nobody would fool him this time. When I told him she was clear, he began to cry like a child. Then I got him up to my cabin and set him about writing his statement. But I'd forgotten he had a mania for making away with himself. I suppose I'm to blame for that. He went out on the deck afterward. I didn't see what happened, but the maid said he climbed up into the mizzen shrouds and then threw himself down, not into the water, but upon the deck. When we picked him up, he was conscious, but dying. I felt sorry for him, poor devil. He called to me as he lay there dying, and made me promise that I'd bury him as soon as he'd gone. I can walk back by myself, said he. I know the way. I'll find her. Well, what could I do? I promised. He went about half an hour later, smiling a goodbye. We sewed him in one of those sacks, put some scrap iron at his feet, and let him go. I suppose he's down there now, and I hope he found her, whoever she may be. The End of The Lure of Atlantis by Joel Martin Nichols, Jr. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the proof. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. The Death's Head Moth was first seen in Blinkenwood, England, on January 30th, 1649, on the very day King Charles I of England was beheaded. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the unusual story of the only people who never get fat. Here's a way to make sure you stay on your diet. Take a lesson from the natives of the Nuba tribe in Africa. They cut small portholes as the only entrance to their huts. By doing this, they keep their families very figure conscious. 
Any member of the family who does not eat sparingly eventually will not fit through the small opening and therefore is automatically barred from the house. Believe it or not. We're back. That was The Lure of Atlantis by J.M. Nichols, first published in Weird Tales magazines in 1925. Now we come to this week's episode of the Magnus Archives, a creepy story about a man who is asked to take care of a certain box and struggles with the urge to see what exactly is inside. This week's episode is suitably entitled, Do Not Open. I'll be back shortly to introduce this week's old-time radio episode. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 2 Do Not Open Joshua Gillespie, regarding his time in possession of an apparently empty wooden casket. Original statement given November 22nd, 1998. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. It started when I was in Amsterdam for a holiday with a few of my friends. Everything you're thinking right now, you're right. We were all early twenties, just graduated, and decided to spend a couple of weeks going crazy on the continent, so you can almost certainly fill in all the blanks yourself. There were very few points where I'd say that I was entirely sober, and even fewer where I acted like it. Though I wasn't quite as bad as some of my friends who had a hard time handling themselves at times. This may have been why I headed out alone that morning. No idea of the exact date, but it was sometime in mid-May. The others were sleeping off their assorted hangovers, and I decided to head out into the beautiful sunshine of that Netherlands morning and take a walk. 
Before graduating from Cardiff with the others, I had been studying architecture, so was looking forward to spending a few hours by myself to wander and really take in the buildings of central Amsterdam. I was not disappointed. It's a beautiful city, but I realised too late that I hadn't taken any map or guidebook with me, and an hour or two later I was thoroughly lost. I wasn't particularly worried, as it was still mid-afternoon at this point, and getting lost in the back streets had kind of been what I was trying to do. But I still decided I'd better make an actual effort to find my way back to where my friends and I were staying off Ellenstraat. I managed it eventually, but my inability to speak Dutch meant I spent a good hour riding the wrong way on the uh, various trams. By the time I got back to Ellenstraat, it was starting to get dark. I was feeling quite stressed, so I decided to pop into one of the cafes to relax before joining up with my friends. I couldn't say for sure exactly how long I was in there, but I do know it had gotten fully dark by the time I noticed I wasn't sat at my table alone. I've tried to describe the man who now sat opposite me many times, but it's difficult. He was short, very short, and felt like he had an odd density to him. His hair was brownish, I think, cut quite short, and he was clean-shaven. His face and dress were utterly unremarkable, and the more I try to think of exactly what he looked like, the harder it is to picture him clearly. To be honest, though, I'm inclined to blame that on the drugs. The man introduced himself as John, and asked how I was. I replied as best I could, and he nodded saying he was also an Englishman inside a foreign land. I remember he used that exact phrase because it struck me at the time as very odd. He said he was from Liverpool, though I don't recall him having any sort of accent, and that he was looking for a friend who he could rely on for a favour. Now, high as I was, I got suspicious as soon as he said that last part, and I started to shake my head. John said it was nothing too onerous, just looking after a package for him until he had some friends pick it up, and that he would pay well. I thought he was talking about smuggling, and was about to refuse again when he reached into his jacket, I think, and pulled out an envelope. Inside was ten thousand pounds. I know, I counted it. I knew it was a stupid move, but I kept remembering my friend Richard telling me how easy it had been to get a pound of hash through customs on his first trip to Holland, and holding that much cash in my hands. I said yes. John smiled, thanked me, and said that he would be in touch. He left the coffee shop, and I immediately started panicking about what I had agreed to. I wanted to chase after him and return the money, but something weighed me down kept me locked into my seat. I just sat there for a long time. I don't remember much about the next few days except worrying about when I'd see John again. I was careful not to spend any of the money he'd given me, and had decided to return it as soon as he turned up. I'd say I had made a mistake and couldn't take his money, or look after anything from him. I tried to enjoy myself, but it was like this shadow hanging over me, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I waited for days, right up until the end of our trip, but he never showed up. I obsessively checked my suitcase before boarding the plane home, just in case someone had snuck something into it, but there was nothing new in there. I flew back to England with my friends still high, and ten thousand pounds tucked into my coat pocket. It was surreal. 
It wasn't until almost a year later that I felt confident enough to actually spend any of the money. I'd moved down to work for a small architect's firm in Bournemouth, on the south coast. It was an entry-level job, and the pay wasn't great, but it was the only offer I got in my chosen field, so I moved down there with the hopes of getting some experience and a better position in a year or two. Bournemouth was a decent-sized seaside town, though much less idyllic than I'd assumed it would have been. But rents for a place of my own were a little bit out of my price range, given my starting pay grade. I didn't know anyone else down there and wasn't keen to share my space with strangers, so I decided to use some of the money I'd been given in Amsterdam the previous year. I reasoned they were unlikely to find me at this stage. I'd not given John any of my details when he spoke to me, not even my name. And if they hadn't been able to find me over the course of the last year, it was doubtful they'd be able to track me here. Also, if it had been drug smuggling, as I suspected... £10,000 probably wasn't so much money to them that they'd track me this far over it. Also, and looking back this sounds stupid, but I'd just grown a beard and thought it would be hard for anyone to recognise me as the same guy, so I spent a bit of John's money on renting a nice one-bedroom flat in the Triangle near the town centre and moved in almost immediately. About a week later, I was in my kitchen cutting up some fruit for breakfast and I heard the doorbell ring. I answered it to see two red-faced delivery men. Between them they carried an immense package, which they'd clearly had to manoeuvre up the narrow stairs of the building I lived in. They asked if I was Joshua Gillespie, and when I said yes, they said they had a delivery addressed to me, and pushed past into the hall. They didn't seem to be from any delivery company I knew, and they weren't wearing any uniforms. I tried to ask them some questions, but as soon as they'd placed the box on the floor, they turned around and walked out. They were both well over six feet tall and very imposing, so there was little I could have done to stop them leaving, even if I'd wanted to. The door slammed behind them, and I was left alone with this package. It was about two metres long, maybe one metre wide and roughly the same deep. It was sealed with parcel tape, and written on the top was my name and address in thick, curving letters, but there was no return address or postmark of any sort. I was starting to risk being late for work at this point, but I decided I couldn't bring myself to leave without seeing what was inside, so I fetched the knife from my kitchen counter and cut the tape, keeping the box closed. Inside was a coffin. I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't that. My knife fell to the floor, and I just stared at it in mute surprise. It was made of unvarnished, pale yellow wood, and had a thick metal chain wrapped around it, which was closed at the top with a heavy iron padlock. The lock was closed, but had the key sitting inside it. I started to reach for it when I noticed two other things on the coffin lid. The first was a piece of paper, folded in half and tucked under the chain, which I took. The other was the presence of three words, scratched deep into the wood of the casket in letters three inches high. They read, Do not open. I withdrew my hand from the padlock slowly, unsure what I was supposed to do. At some point I must have sat down, as I found myself on the floor propped up against the wall, staring at this bizarre thing that had inexplicably turned up at my home. I remembered the piece of paper at this point and unfolded it, but it simply read, D. 
delivered with gratitude, J. Strange as it sounds, it was only then I made the connection with the man I'd met in Amsterdam. He'd told me he wanted someone to look after a package for a while. Was this the package he was talking about? Was I to be looking after a corpse? Who was coming to pick it up? When? I called in sick to work, and just sat there, watching the coffin for what might have been minutes or might have been hours. I just had no idea what to do. Eventually I steeled myself and moved towards it, until my face was just inches away from the lid. I took a deep breath, trying to see if I could smell anything from inside. Nothing. If there was a dead body in there, it hadn't started to smell yet. Not that I really knew what a dead body smelled like. It was early summer at this point, which would mean that they must have died recently, if there was a body in there at all. As I got up, my hand brushed the wood of the coffin, and I realized it was warm, very warm, like it had been lying in the sun for hours. Something about it made my flesh crawl slightly, and I withdrew my hand quickly. I decided to make a cup of tea. It was something of a relief standing next to the kettle, as from that angle I couldn't see the thing out in the hall. I could just ignore it. I didn't move even after I'd filled my mug, I just stood there, sipping my tea, not even noticing it was still far too hot to drink comfortably. When I finally got the nerve to step back out into the hall, the coffin still lay there, unmoving. I finally made a decision and, firmly gripping the padlock, I removed the key and placed it on the hall table next to the door. I then took hold of the coffin and chain and started to pull it further into my flat. It was weird to touch it. The wood still had that unsettling warmth to it, but the chain was as cold as you'd expect from a thick piece of iron and apparently hadn't taken on any of the heat. I didn't have any cupboards with enough space to hold the thing, so in the end I just dragged it into my living room and pushed it up against the wall as out of the way as possible. I cut up the cardboard box it had been sealed in and put it with the rubbish outside. And just like that I had, apparently, started storing a coffin in my home. At the time, I think I assumed it was full of drugs, at least as far as I assumed anything about the situation. Why anyone would store something in such a noticeable way, or with a total stranger like me, these weren't questions I could even guess at an answer to. But I decided it was best to think about it as little as possible. For the next few days I avoided my living room, as I found being so close to the thing made me nervous. I was also staying alert for the smell of any sort of rot, which might indicate there was something dead inside the coffin after all. I never smelled anything, though, and... As the days passed, I found myself noticing my mysterious charge less and less. About a week after it arrived, I finally started using my living room again. I'd watch TV, mostly, and keep half an eye on the unmoving casket. At one point, I got so cocky as to actually use it as a table. I was drinking a glass of orange juice at the time and absent-mindedly placed it on top of the lid, not really realising exactly what I had done. At least... Not until I heard movement from underneath it. I froze, listening intently and staring, willing myself to have been imagining things. But then it came again, a soft but insistent scratching, just below where I had placed my glass. 
It was slow and deliberate, and caused gentle ripples to spread across the surface of my juice. Needless to say, I was terrified. More than that, I was confused. The coffin had been lying in my living room, chained and unmoving, for well over a week at this point. If there had been anything living in there when it was delivered, it seemed unlikely it would still be alive. And why hadn't it made any sound before if there was something in there capable of movement? I gently picked up my glass, and immediately the scratching stopped. I waited for some time, considering my options, before I placed it back down on the other end of the lid. It took about four seconds for the scratching to start up again, now more insistently. When I took the glass away this time, it didn't stop for another five minutes. I decided against doing any further experiments, and instead made the very deliberate decision to ignore it. I felt, at that point, I either needed to use the heavy iron key to open it and see for myself what was in there, or follow the gouged instruction and resolve myself to never look inside. Some might call me a coward, but I decided on the latter, that I would interact with it as little as possible while it lived in my house. Well, I guess lived may be the wrong term. I knew I'd made the right decision the next time it rained, I heard the box begin to moan. It was a Saturday, and I was spending the day staying in and doing some light reading. I had few friends in Bournemouth. Something about having a mysterious coffin lying in my living room made me reluctant to make the sort of connections that might lead to people coming round, and so I spent most of my free time alone. I didn't watch a lot of television even before my living room was taken over with storing this thing, and so I now found myself sat in my room reading quite a lot. I remember I had just started Michael Crichton's The Lost World at the time, and it started raining outside. It was a hard, heavy rain, the sort that falls straight down with no wind to disturb it until everything is dark and wet. It was barely past midday, but I remember the sky was so overcast and gloomy that I had to get up to turn on the light. And that was when I heard it. It was a low, gentle sound. I've seen Dawn of the Dead, I know what the groans of the undead are meant to sound like, but it wasn't that at all. It was almost melodious. It sounded almost like singing, if it was muffled by twenty feet of hard-packed soil. At first, I thought it might have been coming from one of the other flats in my building, but as it went on, and the hairs on my arm began to stand on end, I knew, I just knew, where it was coming from. I walked to the living room and stood in the doorway, watching as the sealed wooden box continued to moan its soft, musical sound out of the rain. There was nothing to be done. I'd made my decision not to open it, and this certainly did not make me want to reconsider that. So I just went back to my bedroom, put on some music, and turned it up loud enough to drown out the sounds. And so it continued for a few months. Whatever was in the casket would scratch at anything placed on top of it and moan whenever it rained, and that was that. I suppose it goes to show that you can get used to anything if you have to, no matter how bizarre. I occasionally considered trying to get rid of it or finding people like you guys to investigate, but... In the end, I decided that I was actually more afraid of whoever was responsible for entrusting me with the coffin than I was of the actual coffin itself. 
so I kept it secret. The only thing that worried me was sleeping. I think it gave me bad dreams. I don't remember my dreams, never have, and if I was getting nightmares, they were no different. I didn't remember them, and I certainly don't now. But I know I kept waking up in a panic, clutching at my throat and struggling to breathe. I also started sleepwalking. The first time that happened, it was the cold that woke me up. It was the middle of winter, and I tend not to keep the heating on when I'm asleep. It took me a few seconds to fully process where I was. I was standing in the dark in my living room, over the coffin. What concerned me more about the situation was the fact that when I awoke, I seemed to be holding the key to it in my hand. Obviously this worried me. I even went to my GP about it, who referred me to the sleep clinic at the nearby hospital, but the problems never recurred in a clinical setting. I decided to hide the key in more and more difficult-to-access places, but still I kept waking up with it. I was starting to panic. When I awoke one morning to find I'd actually placed the key within the lock and was, as far as I could tell, moments from opening it, I knew I had to find a solution. In the end, what I took to doing was perhaps a bit elaborate, but it seemed to work. I would place the key within a bowl of water, and then put it in the freezer, encasing it in a solid block of ice. I still sometimes found myself trying to get to the key in my sleep, but the chill of the ice always woke me up long before I could do anything with it. And in the end, it just became yet another part of my routine. I lived like that for almost a year and a half. It's funny how fear can just become as routine as hunger, at a certain point I just accepted it. My first clue that my time keeping the coffin was coming to an end was when it began to rain and there was silence. I didn't notice at first, as my habit at that point had been to put on the music as soon as the weather began to turn, but after a few minutes I realised that there wasn't anything to drown out. I turned off my music and went to check. The living room was silent. Then came a knock at the door. The sound was light and unobtrusive, but it rang out like thunder in the quiet flat. I knew what I'd see as soon as I opened the door, and I was right. John and the two delivery men stood there. I wasn't surprised to see them, as I say, but they actually seemed quite surprised to see me. John had to take a second to look me up and down, almost in disbelief as I asked if they'd come to collect their coffin. He said that they had, and he hoped it hadn't been too much trouble. I told him where he could stick it, and he didn't seem to have an answer for that. He did seem genuinely impressed, however, when I got the key out of the freezer. I didn't even try to thaw it. I was so eager to have this thing out of my life that I just dropped the bowl of ice on the floor and shattered it. I watched as John picked the icy key off the floor, and I told them it was in the living room. I didn't follow them. I didn't want to see what they did with the coffin. I didn't want to see if they opened it. And when the screaming started, I didn't want to see who was screaming or why. I only left the kitchen when the two delivery men carried the coffin past the door. I followed them down the stairs and watched in the pouring rain as they locked it into a small van marked Beacon and Hope Deliveries. Then they drove away. There was no sign of John. 
That was the last I heard of it. I got a new job and moved to London shortly afterwards. And now I just try not to think about it too much. Statement ends. It's always nice to hear that my hometown is not entirely devoid of odd occurrences and eerie stories. Ice cream, beaches and boredom are all very well, but I'm glad to hear Bournemouth has at least a few apparitions to call its own. That said, the fact is Mr. Gillespie's statement starts with drug use and continues on with the lack of corroborating witnesses being a central theme, which means that an eerie story is all that it is. When the Institute first investigated, it doesn't look like they were able to find a single piece of evidence to support the existence of this scratched coffin. And to be honest, I didn't think it was worth wasting anyone's time over now, nearly twenty years later. That said, I did mention it to Tim yesterday, and apparently he did some digging of his own. Brecon and Hope did in fact exist, and were a courier service that operated until 2009 when they went into liquidation. They were based in Nottingham, however, significantly north of Bournemouth, and if they kept records of their deliveries, they are no longer available. What is interesting, however, is the address Mr. Gillespie provided for the flat this all took place in. The housing association that ran it does keep extensive records on the tenants that have lived in their buildings going back some forty or fifty years. From what Tim could find, it appears that for the two years of his residence, Mr. Gillespie was the only person living in that entire building, with the other seven flats being utterly vacant. Nobody moved in following his departure, and the building was sold to a developer and demolished shortly after this statement was originally given. Predictably, no one who worked for that housing association in the 90s is still there, and despite Tim's best efforts, we could get no explanation for why, in a building of that size, Mr. Gillespie spent almost two years living alone, save for an old wooden coffin. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written by Jonathan Sims. It was recorded and produced by Murray Porter and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, Tweet us on Twitter at The Rusty Quill or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The steeple of the parish church of Eccles, England, was buried under sand by a gale in 1605 and was exposed again by high winds 275 years later. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the strange story of George Thompson. One of the most unusual expressions of sorrow was shown by George Thompson of Pomfret, Connecticut, 
who literally clothed himself in sadness. He did it as a mourning gesture for his fiancée, who died on the eve of their marriage. As a constant reminder of his great loss, he wore the clothing that he had planned to wear on his wedding day for the remaining 30 years of his life, believe it or not. And we're back. That was episode two of the Magnus Archives. Do not open. This brings us to our old-time radio show for this program. This week, Dreadtime Stories presents another selection from the Quiet Please Archives in the form of The Thing Under the Forble Board. I'll be back shortly to close out the show. Quiet, please. Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Furble Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago, a little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now, I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board is no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because eh, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level... Yeah, sure they do. From the time I was a roughneck, we got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. 
But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells, trilobites mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe, then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing, and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Well, you see, a, a core drill is hollow. And as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's gone into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for my supper. I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunewald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi, Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? They yeah, all went to town. I'm the whole crew. Yeah, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd be in here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, oh, seven pork chops. And bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a banquet. Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Yeah. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh-huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. Mm. I don't see anybody. Keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. Like so. When did you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of holes, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. How? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. Mm, Ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? <laughs> yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, I'm much obliged. Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. 
Yeah, I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> Never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait till you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another fork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish I was screech out of the What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, why do you... Listen. What's eating you? You, you know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there in that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. Getting against those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... Ah, what you so jittery about, Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Doggone it, I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh. That's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight. I turned around and went outside. I found a car. And I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up, and when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the forble board, I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, forble board. Well, you've seen oil derricks, or pictures of them. You know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forble board. Well, you see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a triple, four is a forble. When you pull a pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick of the traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. Then when a forble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the forble board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again until you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the forble board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. Hey, you know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. 
And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Hang on, I ain't done. I poked at the Cora rock that looked like a, a kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up, and it was cold, and it was heavy, and... It was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could, he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done? When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of piece and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from down in a forbal board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. Things I could hear, but I couldn't see up on the forbal board. Billy Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash alongside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck. with a broken neck and his left hand. Well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car and I got in. I stepped on the starter. And I couldn't get it to go, and then I remembered after I pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pint, Ted. Oh, what was he doing up in the formal board? 
Did you threaten him, and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the formal board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides, how would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, so. it's mighty mysterious. Well, so it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there. I want to start drilling again, and I'm shorthanded. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again, and, well, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, okay. Right. Let's get rolling. They got steam up, Happy? I'm all set. All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. Hey, you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going. So, okay, I go up on the formal board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first four-bullet drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the four-bullet. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself. enough two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more. And as far as I know, the abandoned Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. You know what? There was something up there on the formal board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate as dismal... As dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked in at the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was a gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again and it came from above my head and... And I, 
I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the forble board. No, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. There was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipes shivered, and I thought, What can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like... like Jack Straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the forbal board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body... I'll tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well, come to an alien world, and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone. Living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible. That if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face. I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen... Ah, but it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. 
There she is. Come on in, dear. The title of tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunewald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend Albert April. Now for the word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional. At least I, for one, hope so. Next week, the story is called Presto Change I'm sure. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. This program was heard in Canada through the facilities of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. A witch doctor in Angola, Africa, who wants to resign his profession, must attain an entirely new identity by wearing a mask day and night for a whole year. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the weird story of a man who staged his own execution. Some men have been known to do strange things in the face of death, and Giuseppe Caracci certainly was one of them. Giuseppe was an Italian sculptor who was sentenced to death in Paris for attempting to murder Napoleon. He persuaded authorities to permit him to travel to the guillotine in the purple robes of a Roman emperor. And he rode in a golden coach, which he designed especially for his own execution. Believe it or not. We're back. That was Quiet Please with The Thing Under the Forble Board. And that brings us to the end of this week's show, dear listeners. Now, again, for a little housekeeping, remember that we have a form for our dear listeners to use to submit ideas for stories to run on the show. If you have any questions or comments about the program, please feel free to email yours cruelly at timefordread at gmail.com. All incidental music heard on this show is brought to us courtesy of tabletopaudio.com. Tabletop Audio, music for every work, podcast, or play, Dungeons and Dragons. If you've enjoyed this show or any of the others on Radio for Humans, please consider signing up to support us on Patreon, which we'll be launching in the very near future. Every dollar we get goes to keeping independent commercial-free radio on the air. And finally, the Magnus Archives is courtesy of The Rusty Quill and is shared here under a Creative Commons share-and-share-like license. As always, dear listeners, we encourage you to scare and enjoy the program. Thank you for listening. We look forward to our next meeting and wish you unpleasant dreams.
Direct Time Stories Back from the Grave is a production of Adam Hebert for Radio for Humans and approved podcasting platforms. Neither the producer nor Radio for Humans claim anything as their own intellectual property that they themselves have not created. <laughs>